Our show was a, a lampoon, uh, a satire of a sort, full of ironies uh, for the adults, and excitement, splash, adventure, action for the kids. TV's Batman, actor Adam West. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. In January of 1966, a new TV series premiered, different from anything we'd seen before. And even though it only ran on the ABC network for three seasons, it changed television history and made a folk hero out of actor Adam West. That series, of course, was... West played millionaire philanthropist Bruce Wayne, also known as Batman, who along with his sidekick, Dick Grayson, also known as Robin, played by Burt Ward, fought crime at every turn in Gotham City. Every week, there was a new supervillain ready to take on the dynamic duo. Sadly, the show also typecast Adam West, and it took him years to break free of the Batman mold. I met him in 1994, when he'd written a memoir of the Batman years, now, there's also a little bit of trivia that Adam West reveals in this interview about the movie role he had to turn down that could have made him a superstar. So here now, from 1994, Adam West. Why did you write this book? Masochism. <laughs> I wrote it because I had so many requests over the years, and I just got really tired of people asking me questions. <laughs> about Batman and the show and the people involved. And and I thought that uh, it, it just might be a bit of a treat if I uh, wrote a book and uh, tried to answer some of the questions I've been asked over the years. I, I, I do gather. I mean, the last couple of years, there's been a whole rash of books, and, and I'm glad as a consumer to see them, but by people from the, from the shows that we loved in the 60s when we were growing up. And I get the sense from all of them, uh, whether they're good-natured about it or not, as certain others have not been, that you'd just as soon answer the questions once and for all, close the book, end that chapter, and put it behind you. Well, not in my case, um, because there's another book coming, and uh, I, I don't think I'll ever be able to put it behind me, Bill, nor do I want to. I'm very proud of Batman. I think it's, uh, uh, it's become a classic, and it's a, it's a fun show for the whole family, and after all... Uh, generation after generation become my victims, you see, with Batman. And so it's, uh, I don't think it'll ever be behind me. Batman plays to about a half a billion people every day. And uh, right now it's on the FX channel, uh, I think three times a day. And th there's another reason too. I think, um, when you write a book and, and it's successful, there's money. <laughs> yes, there is that too. <laughs> Among the many stories that I loved in here was was when, as the show was about to premiere, and you were in the grocery store buying a steak, and you heard people telling the clerk to hurry up and get them through the line so they could get home because Batman was on that night. It was exactly. I mean, as a kid, I remember all my friends. We couldn't wait until Batman came on. Well, you know, it was the first uh, in television. It was on twice a week in color. And uh, the network, ABC and 20th Century Fox, the producing studio, uh, really promoted the show. 
they beat the drums long and loud. So that by the time Batman was about to air, uh, people were pretty excited about it. And that little scene in my book, I think you're referring to, uh, really let me know that there'd be no more anonymity, uh, after that night because people were clamoring to see the show and, uh, that was about it. So I sensed at that time that possibly I had this uh, whirlwind by the tail and had to write it out. And this was pre-Entertainment Tonight, pre-People Magazine, pre-all all the celebrity. I mean, this is this is on the order of the Beatles. Well, yes, I've heard, uh, you know, I saw an ad uh, some time ago that in the 60s there were the three Bs. <laughs> now that you mention it, Batman, Bond, and the Beatles. And um, you remember, too, that I think at that time there were only three major networks or windows. And so uh, any promotion for a show could be more concentrated. Uh, you know, we didn't have three or four or five hundred channels to navigate through and and dozens of magazines that have to do with the media. So it became a pretty concentrated kind of uh, effort. You uh, actually at one point in the book mentioned that you could have been two of those three Bs. You were not going to be a Beatle, I assume. Well, yes, I was asked to be Ringo Starr at one time. <laughs> but no, no, there was conversation about me doing Bond after Sean Connery left. And um, I couldn't because of my contract at the time, and I felt uh, that it should be a limey. It should be a Brit. It shouldn't be an American like me. Do you regret that decision? Uh, at this moment, yes. But <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not really. No, I've been very lucky. And, uh, you know, there were two sides to that uh, coin that uh, Batman really typecast me. And, uh, however, I have worked very hard to get away from it and to do other things. And and uh, very quickly it happened. It only took me 25 years. And I've been able now to do other things. But it is a, it, it may be a backhanded compliment, but it is a compliment nonetheless, isn't it? When an audience so identifies you with a character, it just assumes that you are Batman. Well, yeah, I guess it is. Uh, it, it simply means that, uh, uh, all of us who were involved in, in, in that social cultural phenomenon, uh, got lucky somehow and, and, uh, went in the right direction. And as the guy who played the role, naturally I am singled out and identified. Um, I think people generally would like to have me as Batman <clears throat> for dinner or something. I don't know. But, <laughs> but I mean, can, uh, they, can people look at Leonard Nimoy and not think of Spock? Can they look at Bob Denver and, and not think Gilligan? Can they look at Buddy Ebsen and not think Jed Clampett? Well, I think all those things, sure. And I look at me and I think, uh, that's just an ordinary guy that became a bat from time to time. And, you know, <laughs> all of us can do that. You tell marvelous stories in here about uh, the guest stars, which, of course, uh, many of whom are our favorites. Uh, tell us how Frank Gorshin developed the giggle that he had for the Riddler. Uh, I think, uh, well, first of all, Frank, uh, Frank Gorshin uh, is a very... 
uh, has a neurotic edge to his personality. Frank, if you're listening, I, I hope you heard that. <laughs> he, he, one of my great friends and absolutely marvelous at what he did. And, but Frank uses this intensity, this neurotic edge. And I think Frank used to smoke a great deal. And I think at one time he was puffing on a cigarette and the, uh, the smoke got caught in his throat as he started to laugh and something else kind of funny came out. And uh, it was this high-pitched kind of neurotic, crazy giggle. <laughs> and that's how Frank developed uh, the Riddler's laugh. Because to much of the irritation and consternation of my parents, my older brother used to go run race all around the house doing his imitation of Frank Gorshin's giggle. <laughs> And because he, he was just so tickled by that giggle. Now, as you tell the to story, uh, a, a cigarette or a smoking caused Burgess Meredith to develop the the penguin's little bark. Uh, yes. How did Burgess sound? Uh, wow, that's right, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he always had that cigarette in the ci cigarette holder right in my face, in the mask. And uh, yes, I think Burgess did tell that story that. Uh, uh, he didn't smoke at all, and uh, the smoke bothered him a great deal. <laughs> and that's how he got that kind of inflection or little <clears throat> noise that he makes. Wah, that's right, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you dislike the word camp, I take it. Well, I've always, uh, I guess, been a little sensitized to it because uh, a number of books and uh, critiques and so on came out about the show, and they used the word camp as a convenient term, and I think a little too handily, uh, because camp, uh, the definition I got was it's based on uh, the phrase camp followers, about the prostitutes who followed armies around and so on. And there were no prostitutes following uh, our show in Gotham City, as far as I knew. But uh, that's how camp occurred. Now, to me, uh, first of all, I'm serious now. I don't really know what camp means. Our show was a, a lampoon, uh, a satire of a sort, full of ironies uh, for the adults, and excitement, splash, adventure, action for the kids. And well, as you point out, here's a character, Bruce Wayne, who, when he puts on the cowl, assumes that no one will know it's him. He's really nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, as a viewer, I could understand maybe, all right, with the full cowl, the cape, and everything like that, possibly some people, if they're nearsighted, might not be able to rececognize <laughs> that it's Bruce Wayne. But Burt Ward, all right, here's, here's Dick Grayson, and all he's got is this, this you know, little Halloween-type mask. Nobody knows it's him? You know, I, I think what we did there was project the, uh, <clears throat> yeah, the comedic element of that, because at least that was our intent, what you're talking about. Because if you notice over the years in entertainment, uh, uh, most stories on the screen or whatever or animated uh, graphics, they will use some kind of uh, piece of clothing or mask or something that doesn't disguise anybody. I mean, there are guys who hold up stagecoaches and they pull up their neckerchief, right? And you just see a little bit, but you can always tell it's their eyes. You know, it's like a voice imprint or whatever. You, you know, you really know them. So we just projected that a little further, that Batman would absolutely believe that no one would recognize him in that cowl. He didn't change his voice at all, right? <laughs> Nobody knew it was Bruce Wayne, millionaire philanthropist. Self-deluded. 
Was the uh, was the Bat Cave as impressive when you were actually in it as we saw it on television? Well, it tends to blur a little after about uh, sixty episodes. <laughs> <laughs> and running through it and doing this and that. Um, but yes, that's, that's a good question because of all the sets I've worked on in the last 25, 30 years, I think the Bat Cave was probably the most magnificent in its own way in that it was, uh, it was huge, took up two stages and, um, the lighting, and all of the textures and things that were brought out with the movie Magic. Uh, it was very impressive, really. And those Dick's and Bruce's bat poles? To the bat poles. Went from the floor of that cave right up into the uh, lighting, into the walks up there, and, and they were about 60 feet high, those poles. So when we crawled up there and got up into the lights and jumped on the pole, that was uh, a dizzying ride down, folks. <laughs> is, is it that what you said in here, that the, the crew one day painted the poles and uh, forgot to tell you? Yeah, little things like that happened uh, as we went along, uh, but this was in the, uh, you know, uh, uh, Wayne Manor library set, and we always threw the switch in the head of Shakespeare, and we'd run to the library wall, right? And the wall was supposed to open on time, and we did not hopefully splatter into the wall, which happened frequently, but we hit the poles one day, and they were freshly painted in gold paint and we had this big stripe down the front of our suits <laughs> as we hit the bottom yeah and those poles only went about 10 to 15 feet down into the floor just so our heads would disappear <laughs> there were mattresses down there we never knew who was going to be down there from the night before either <laughs> do you have a favorite episode or or after all this time are they all your favorites uh i well i think i like um the first Hey Diddle Riddle and, and, uh. Well, you had a long time to work on that one. Well, we did. We had some time to set the tone of the show and to get things going right. And I think because of that, uh, the attention we paid to it and, and the, the, the sort of no limits we set for Batman. For example, he could be in a disco and uh, slip a love potion and, you know, just, uh, be abandoned with his uh, dancing and whatever. So, uh, yeah, setting the style, the tone of the show, the fact that, uh, we could really do pretty much of anything, uh, comedically. If we had a reason for it, you know, if it was based in our, uh, comedic reality there, our little world, that we could really get away with just about anything. And, um, and also, you know, uh, the first time we got into the special effects and saw w what would happen with giant elephants and umbrellas and whatever and smokes and, you know, all kinds of devices like that, uh, that was fun. Really an adventure, that first show. I have another segment I kind of like because it was um, uh, definitively Batman. I thought it was George Sanders, the late George Sanders' Mr. Freeze. Mm -hmm. And uh, every time, you know, George appeared as Mr. Freeze, his part of the screen, wherever his area was, was icy green or blue, whereas ours was, you know, normal colors. And if we crossed over, look out, because it was really frigid in there. And he sat at the table at dinner, and he made a remark like, 
Back to Alaska, Batman. And, you know, those things I thought were just so typically uh, Batman. I did love the puns, by the way. I've always loved puns. Thanks. (laughs) They they were fun to work on. Yeah. (laughs) Are you tired after the last four or five years of hearing people ask you about the movie version? Well, it gets a little tedious. Uh, Look, I'm not afraid of people. I like people, and I I know they enjoy the show, so it's always fun to uh, trade a comment or two wherever I am. But... Uh, I'm, I'm tired of it when the media asks me to criticize and to be judgmental about it because the new movies, uh, that is their vision and we had ours and they're very different. That's all. Ours was lighthearted and fun and kind of swashbuckling and, and silly in a way. And, and I think family friendly, accessible to the whole family. Whereas the new movies are, uh, I guess you'd say, gothic, dark, uh, sinister, nihilistic, uh, uh, in a sense, more troublesome, uh, and uh, things that maybe people don't want to take their kids to. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Or No, Bill, I think you've been uh, fairly uh, complete here, and, and uh, I'm really tired of you now. <laughs> and I think that... that uh, I'm, I just don't want to answer any more questions. <laughs> you temperamental stars are all alike. <laughs> Adam West died in 2017 at the age of 88. Now you can find easy Amazon links to Adam West's book at our website, heardeverything.com. Would you do me a favor? If you like today's episode, would you tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? We post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms and all of our past episodes at our website, heardeverything.com. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my 1997 interview with another Hollywood figure with a very different kind of story than Adam West's, my interview with Mia Farrow. I was on my first movie set, you know, before I even can remember My father was a director, John Farrow. My mother was Maureen O'Sullivan, who played Jane in the Tarzan movies. So I spent a lot of my childhood on set. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. (laughs) 